Pastors Larry and Tiz Huck welcome you to another Larry Huck Ministries podcast. We pray this teaching will fill you with God's wisdom, anointing, and revelation knowledge. Thank you for your prayers and faithful support. Praise the Lord. Would you stand with me? The Bible says my father's house shall be called what? A house of prayer. So I want to go before the Lord that we would pray for this service. We would pray for our nation. We'd pray for uh, uh, our city. We'd pray for you as an individual. How many of you have a need before the Lord? How many are glad that God not only hears our needs, but he answers our prayer? Amen. And the Bible says that we're to come boldly before the throne of God. Now, I want you to prepare yourself for this service today. And I want you to prepare yourself for next week's service as we're having members of the Israeli Knesset that's going to be here with us. They're going to talk to us about how important it is that Christians and Jews in these last days are standing together. And all of this is leading up to the day of Pentecost. Now, in ancient Hebrew, there's no word for what? It's not a coincidence that God worked it out for David to be here, for Sam and Shmulek to be here from the Israeli government next week, because we're going up to Pentecost, being filled with the Spirit of God. And you know, we we were talking about this in the back. The Bible says they looked at some of Jesus' followers, and they said, we know that these guys have been with Jesus. Now, I I want you to hear that. They said, we know these guys right here had been with Jesus. And it's not because they had a 40-pound Bible under their arm. It's not because they had what would Jesus do bracelet. They knew that these guys had been with Jesus because they saw the boldness. And if there's ever been a time for Christians to come out of the closet... And start being bold for the kingdom of God. It is now. Can I have an amen? You know, a lot of people get upset because we talk about politics in church. But, and, 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 and I talk to pastors all the time. They say, well, no, I don't deal with these things because church is not a place to deal with political things. Listen to me. Abortion is a spiritual thing. Same-sex marriage is a spiritual thing. Now, if somebody that's born a man and dresses like a woman tries to go into the bathroom where my daughters are, it's going to get real spiritual. Because I'm going to biblically lay hands on them. Church is the place that we become equipped as the army of God. We love everybody. But my Bible says, be not hearers of the word only, but doers. The reason why America is the greatest nation in the world is because we are one nation under God, that we follow the word of God. So let's prepare our hearts today. Father, in the name of Jesus, We thank you for your presence here. 
And Father, we ask for a special anointing, a special anointing that we know will be on David, but give us an anointing that are in this building, that are watching around the world by stream. Give us an anointing to be not only hearers of your word, but give us an anointing that we will be doers of your word. And Father, we thank you for what you've done, but we give you praise, we give you glory, we give you honor for what you're going to do. Move on our our church, move on all of our people, bring an anointing on our city, on our state, on our country, and upon every Christian that's watching and standing firm on the word of God. And Father, we honor you in the name that is above every name, the name of Jesus Christ. And all God's people shouted, amen. Amen. Stay standing just for a moment because I want you to give a good clap offering for David Barton. David spoke here several years ago. I didn't realize it's been that long. And we're talking in the back how much our nation has changed in those few years. I've known David for quite a while, but about three or four years ago was the first time that we've had him in for, to speak. And I'm going to be honest with you. I could have listened to him for three or four hours. This man is one of the most fascinating, educated teachers of our country, the word of God, our constitution, where we're going, what is God saying. This is going to be a life-changing service. David Barton is, in my opinion, the greatest teacher in this arena. And God is using him tremendously to speak to America. So prepare your hearts, prepare your minds, and let's receive what God has to say to us. Would you welcome David Barton? Give him a great new beginnings. Welcome. Thanks, brother. Thank, thank you, sir. Thanks, guys. Thank y'all. Thanks, guys. I want to hit some things this morning that um, specifically deal with where we are in the culture. I think God's word is relevant to every aspect of life at all points and times. And so, doing that, I'm going to hit some slides here. I want to talk to you this morning about a single word, and that word is truth. I think we're coming up here, guys. We'll see. We're coming up in a minute. So the word truth, truth is under attack in a way that we have not seen in our lifetime. Uh, Literally, what we see right now, I would say, without using hyperbole, truth is on life support in America. And that's not a good place to be. How can I prove that? I can prove that by polling. If I take you to where we are right now, what we have is three out of five Americans believe there is no absolute moral truth. Now, I will tell you, no nation, no nation, including America, no nation survives that. Nobody can. You have to have at least 51% of the people agree that certain things are right and wrong. Otherwise, laws mean absolutely nothing. Uh, if, there's no reason to have law if you can't get a majority that believe that you should enforce that law. And so what happens with this, this framework of three out of five, this is what's twice mentioned in the book of Judges. Three times in the Bible it says, every man did that which was right in their own eyes. That is the description of anarchy. You cannot have a civilized nation and have anarchy as the ruler. What we have, it's even worse when you look forward because we now know that four out of five uh, millennials 
There we go. Four out of five millennials think that there's no absolute truth. This is the next generation of everything. That's the next generation of church leaders, political leaders, science leaders. It's the next generation of media leaders, of political leaders. So the next generation is even more convinced there's no absolute truth. And then when it comes to Christians, even among Christians, one out of two Christians believe there's no absolute moral truth. This is astounding. But see, this is where so much of the problem with America is the church is not the church. Church is not what it should be. We're not providing the leadership because we ourselves don't believe a lot of this stuff. So when you look at where the church is and where the culture is, this is a dangerous spot for us in America. Now, in looking at what's happening here, when you, we're at the point where objective truth doesn't matter, and there are so many categories where I can show you this. Let me take you just one. Let's start with gender. Just a few years ago, everybody knew there was only two genders. That was self-evident. That was really easy. Not anymore. We don't know how many genders there are as of last November. They've, they've now called it LGBTQIA+. Plus, because there's several hundred genders. You can identify and make your own gender, just whatever you want. Facebook had 71 options for gender if you want to choose on your profile. So we've gone from having two genders to having who knows how many genders. In the same way, we're not sure what religions are out there, but we know they're all good. Right now, 80% of Christians believe that religions other than Christianity will get you to heaven. Now, that's difficult. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and life. Nobody gets to the Father but by me. And 80% of Christians don't believe that. That's professing Christians. So again, the church is a lot of the problem that we have in the culture. You also have the same difficulty with governments. Five years ago, nobody would have thought that Marxism was going to be a viable government option in America. But with this Marxism, whether it's socialism, whether it's communism, it's amazing how many young people now are having tattoos of hammer and sickle placed on them because they think communism is the way to go. That means you know nothing about history. You've not studied anything in history. But we're at the point now where that every possible government option, well, whatever government works for you, just do it. No. Governments, there's a lot of governments that don't work, but it doesn't matter what you think about them. History proves what does and doesn't work. In the same way, when you get to education, we used to have six standardized tests in America, the California Achievement Test, Iowa Test of Basic Skills, Stanford Achievement Test, and therefore we could measure among the states and say, hey, Texas is 43rd in this area or 22nd in this area. Not anymore. Every state has gone to their own standardized tests so that they can't compare themselves with others. So we, we're, at a, we're at a pathetic point now where the, over the last 15 years, 19% of all Americans, excuse me, 19% of all graduates who graduate in any given year are completely illiterate. One out of five students who graduates is illiterate, and that's after spending $162,000 in taxpayers' money from K through 12 on them. 19% every year the last 15 years have graduated can't read their own diploma. You would never know that because, see, in Texas, we have exceptional schools in Texas. Well, that's because we don't measure with anything else. So in education, we don't look with objective measurements. We have the same difficulty with morals. I've already mentioned people think you can make your own rights and wrongs. When you get to history, we just cancel what we don't like. If we think it's bad, we'll just ignore it and play like it never happened. You have the same difficulty with science. We can see the same identical scientific studies and come up with two opposite viewpoints because we're now trying to make the facts fit our viewpoint rather than change our viewpoint to fit the facts. And so whether you're on climate change or on the other side of it, you can look at the same study and people come up with opposite conclusions on the same study. You have the same difficulty when you get into economics. We know right now in economics, for example, that 75% of college students think that America should get rid of the free market system and go to socialism. 69% of millennials believe 
that, and 41% of all Americans believe that. We have 5,800 years of recorded history, thousands of nations. There is not a single instance in history of a nation that went from free market to socialism that maintained individual freedoms and individual prosperity. It's never happened in the history of the world. And somehow it's going to work for us if we do it. No, it's not going to work for us if we do it. But see, we believe now that socialism is where America needs to go by overwhelming numbers. You have the same difficulty when you get into ethics. So all these things, we we kind of make our own stuff up as we, we go right now. And this is a dangerous place for America to be. And so when you look at it, what's happened now is truth and fact is given way to personal opinion. Whatever my opinion is trumps your truth and fact. Now, again, that's dangerous, and I'll show you why as we go along. So the love of the truth is what I want to talk to you about this morning, us being willing to change ourselves if we find truth. Wherever we find truth is where we have to go, even if it's something we disagree with. If it is actually true, you have to go there because Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth. Wherever you find truth, that's going to be Jesus. Even if you disagree with it at times, you've got to conform your life to truth. And there is absolute truth. I'm not talking about individual truth. I'm talking about absolute truth. So there's a great passage in the Bible in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1-12, through 12, where in those 12 verses, it contrasts the man of truth with the man of lawlessness. And you've got this thing going back and forth, the man of truth, the man of lawlessness. And I love the way God finishes this at the end of, of the passage. Because at the end of the passage, it talks about, well, the, the, the people of lawlessness rejected the man of truth. And it says that they did not receive the love of the truth. Now, this is what I'm talking about. We as Christians have to love the truth. We have to conform our life to truth, wherever it is. Because they did not receive the love of the truth, notice the sequence that happens. Because they did not receive the love of the truth, verse 11 says, for this reason God will send them strong delusion. The next step is that they should believe the lie. The next step says that all might be damned who believe not the truth. Now, damned is the King James word for judged or condemned. But notice the sequence that happens here. If you don't love or if you reject the truth, the next thing that happens is a delusion will enter your life. When that delusion happens, you will believe the lie. And when you believe the lie, you will act on the lie. And when you act on the lie, it's going to have a very high consequence as a result. Let me give you one example from science. I used to be a science teacher. Math and science was my gig. In science, we have a number of laws of science. There's not many laws of science because a law of science is very significant. A law of science is something that has never been violated, not once in the history of the world. If a law of science is violated even once, it's no longer a law of science. It becomes an axiom, a theorem, a principle, or something else. So there are not that many laws in science because these things are universal in application. They never change. They've never been violated even once. One of the laws we have is the law of gravity. That law of gravity is literally a law. It is not somebody's opinion. It is something that has been verified time and again. has never been violated once in history. Having said that, I have to admit that America now is in a technological place we've never been before. We have more technology than we've ever had in our life. Uh, as a matter of fact, I was speaking. I've got a friend named Charlie Duke. He was a man who walked on the moon. He was the 10th moonwalker out of the 12. He was the youngest moonwalker. And talking to Charlie about the technology where we are now, he, he held up his iPhone. He said, do you know that in this iPhone right here, there's more technology than we had in all the rooms of NASA computers back in the 60s when we 
put people on the moon. He said, there's more in this phone, right? And so we were talking about the Space Force and what's happening and, and the, the mission to Mars. And I mean, it's just unbelievable what's happening with technology now. And, uh, you may have heard President Trump last year say, we're, we're going to put a, an American on Mars, and it's time to put a woman on the moon. And you just look at all the technology up there, and there is no question that, that gravity doesn't have the same impact it had in previous generations. As a matter of fact, I don't even think that gravity is relevant anymore. Now, here's the deal. I can have all the good reasons to show this, but gravity is still going to be relevant. So here's what happens. I say there's no law of gravity. It doesn't affect us. We're, we're going to be able to do what we want with technology. Once I say there's no law of gravity, the next thing is, well, it doesn't affect me because it's not out there. Technology has changed that. And if it doesn't affect me, then I can do what I want to do. And quite frankly, I've always wanted to be able to jump off a building and soar. And so I'm going to jump off that building, and I am going to soar until I splat on the sidewalk below. I will die. There's no way around it. And you see, notice the sequence here. If I reject the truth, then delusion enters. I will believe a lie. I'll act on it, and there will be high costs and consequences. And quite frankly, it doesn't matter how sincere I am about this. I can believe with my whole heart that gravity is not going to affect me. It doesn't matter. My personal truth doesn't matter. There are certain universal laws that are true regardless of what I feel about them. Regardless of what I've been taught about them, they're always going to work every time. And so this is what America is not into right now. We, we, we don't have a love of the truth. We have a love of my opinion or my side or politically we're polarized. We've got to make sure my side wins. Don't know whether that's true or not, but if it helps my side, it's got to be right. And so we've gotten this place where we don't have a love of the truth. Now, what happens with not having a love of the truth? As Christians, we know where truth comes from. We know, for example, that Jesus said in John 17, 17, says, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. It's a good starting place. Problem, well, his word is truth. And by the way, the verse I quoted earlier, John 14, 6, Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth. So for a Christian, a good starting place for absolute truth is God's Word and Jesus Christ. That's a good starting place. The difficulty we have right now is only 9% of Christians read the Bible on a daily basis. As a result, Christians don't know how God's Word applies in most areas. If I were to ask you, what does the Bible say about the capital gains tax? What does it say about the, uh, the progressive income tax? What does it say about capitation taxes? What does the Bible say about the minimum wage? Very few Christians can answer those questions, and yet the Bible has very clear teachings on all of them. See, we don't even know what the Bible says because we're not into the Bible from a practical standpoint. We think this is just the way you get to heaven. No, no, no. This is the way you live your life on a regular daily basis. What the Bible says about immigration, what the Bible says about economics, what it says about education, what it says about military. You've got to remember that what happened with, with God's Word, He took a bunch of slaves in Egypt took those slaves that had been slaves 400 years, got them out, and, and delivered them, 10 miracles, wiped out the Egyptians at the Red Sea, got them out in the mount. And he said, now, you guys, you've got a real problem here. You think like a bunch of Egyptian slaves. That's all you've been for 400 years. I'm going to make a nation out of you unlike any other nation in the world. And here's how I'm going to do it. And he gave them 613 laws. The 613 laws transformed them from a group of people who thought like slaves to the greatest nation in the history of the ancient world. Now, you look at those laws, they deal with everything. They deal with consanguinity, they deal with restitution, they deal with criminal justice, they deal with, with 
anything you can think of. Everything a nation needs was in those 613 laws. See, God's word deals with everything. We don't know that today. And that's why right now only 6% of Christians have a biblical worldview. Only one out of 16 Christians looks at an issue and sees it the way God sees it in the Bible. We don't know how to apply God's word in a practical way. And so as a result, the culture has more impact on us than God's word does because rarely do we read God's word. The founding fathers, John Quincy Adams, a great example. He would read through the Bible once every year. And his thing was every year as he would read through, he would take a topic and he said, I'm going to read the Bible this year. Because they didn't have concordances and the technology we have, you know, the, to be able to look at stuff. He said, I'm going to read the Bible through. And everything, everything I find about banking, I'm going to make a note on it. And the next time through, I'm going to read this year looking for everything the Bible says about medicine and health care. And the next time through, I'm going to look at everything the Bible says about foreign affairs and foreign relations. That's the way they went at it. The Bible applies to everything. I need to find the verses on it. See, that's what we've got to get back to is seeing how God's Word applies to every single aspect of life. And right now, only one out of 16 Christians does that. So what happens, this is where the supremacy of personal opinion comes in. Because we don't know or we don't care what God says, our opinion matters. Well, my opinion doesn't matter if God's got a different opinion, quite frankly. I mean, but if I don't know what God's opinion is, then I'm going to go with my opinion. And that's where we are. We need to know what God's opinion is on every one of these issues, and that's a challenge for every Christian. We need to to get back to that point. So if I can take something that's in the news, let me take this background and show you how it applies to things that are going right now. Let me take the issue of statues. One of the first statues to start coming down 13 months ago was that of Columbus. Uh, Columbus statues came down all across the nation. Now, why would we be tearing down Christopher Columbus statues? And it's really simple. If you don't know, you just need to do a quick web search, and you'll find all sorts of memes like this one. I don't always celebrate enslavement genocide, but when I do, it's Columbus Day. See, this is why we're moving away from celebrating Columbus Day. It's now becoming Indigenous Peoples Day because we don't need a holiday that celebrates enslavement and genocide, and that's what Columbus is all about. Matter of fact, we know that Columbus was the first sex trafficker in the history of the world. Sex trafficking didn't exist until Columbus brought it in. Uh, we also, memes like this, Savage, stop the genocide, the racism, the imperialism. Stop the celebration. Get away from Columbus Day. This is what's driving us. Now, nobody's asking, is this true or not? We're just accepting that this is what's happening, and we're saying this is the way it is. So uh, let's go back to Columbus for a minute. This is why the Columbus statue is coming down across the nation. I can just These are all news reports. I'm just showing you a series of pictures from news. These are all Columbus statues, all being defaced, all being gone after. But the interesting thing about Columbus statues is there's 600 of them. Now, can you name anybody else who has 600 statues to them? Probably not. Now, this happened 500 years ago. 600 statues erected to the guy. Does this mean that every generation prior to this generation tolerated sex trafficking and genocide and enslavement and celebrated people who engaged in it? That doesn't make sense because we had an entire civil war over the issue of race. 620,000 people lost their life because people said, hey, slavery and oppression is wrong. Can't be that that generation would have celebrated Columbus if he was all this genocidal enslavement maniac that that we're told he is today. So there's got to be more to the story. And and this is where, as Christians, we need to say, all right, what's the real story or what's the history uh, or, or better yet, what's the truth? Now, in our case at Wall Builders, We own about 120,000 documents from before 1812. We own thousands of original documents from so many of these guys, including stuff that goes back to the time of Columbus. 
And if you look at history on that, let's go back to Columbus for a minute. When you look at Columbus, what's the truth about Columbus? Here's the first question I would ask you is how many voyages did he make? Now, a lot of times people will say, well, it doesn't matter how many voyages. He was bad on all of them. Well, if you don't know how many voyages he made, you don't even know enough of the basic facts to even have a discussion. I mean, because what, what happened is he made four voyages. On those four voyages, they involved nearly 10,000 people who went with him in colonization. There were doctors. There were, um, medic- uh, there were uh, doctors. There were soldiers. There were settlers who wanted new land. There were all sorts of people, and they kept records. Some of them liked them. Some of them didn't like them. They all kept records. So we've got all these individual records. Uh, for example, um, we own the, the second oldest piece ever that, that's attributed to Columbus. When Columbus died, his son got his papers, and his son published Columbus's papers. We've got that publication of his son from Columbus's own papers. Then in addition to that, he, sold, he, he sailed for the nation of Spain. And so Spain has a massive collection of all the original documents. Uh, an American diplomat, Washington Irving, who was a great literary figure, but he was a diplomat for America over in Spain. When he was a diplomat in Spain, he spent years in the libraries of Spain looking at the original records. He came out with the three-volume set, The Life of Christopher Columbus, that went through all those, those original documents, what he saw, the good and the bad and the ugly about Columbus. Went through everything. That's out there. See, we don't even know that stuff anymore. So let me give you a little overview about Columbus so we can have a discussion because of what's being said in the culture, what's true, what's not true. This is an example uh, of what's happened with tearing down a statue because he's one of the first statues to come down. So let me take you to when he landed on his first voyage. He made four voyages. This painting actually hangs in the rotunda of the U.S. Capitol. It's 20 feet high, uh, 20 feet wide. It's 14 feet high. Massive life-size painting. 1492, Columbus lands in what we would call the Caribbean, one of the islands out there in the Caribbean. When he lands, he encounters a tribe known as the Tainos. He has great relations with that tribe. They are friendly. They like him. He likes them. They get along really, really well. Things are going great. This looks like a great place to be. And the Tainos said, yeah, we're, we're really glad you like us, but you need to know we're not the only tribe in the islands. There's another tribe that's our enemy, that's also going to be your enemy. You need to watch out for these. And, and the, the Tainos warn him of this tribe that's known as the Canibs or the Caribs. Now, the Canibs and the Caribs, Caribs is where we get the word Caribbean. So named Caribbean after the Caribbeans. Cannibs is where we get the word cannibals because the cannibs were indeed cannibals. They killed and ate the Taino. They killed and ate every other tribe they could find. And so... The Tainos warned Columbus about this, and Columbus literally doesn't believe it. He said, come on, guys. We're in 1492. Who in the civilized year of 1492 eats people? Nobody does it. We're too civilized for that. And so he doesn't, he doesn't buy that, but he does now have great relations with this tribe. So he decides it's time to go back to Spain for supplies because this is going to be a, a, a great place to be. Uh, and he, he writes Spain. He tells Spain, these guys are great. He said, this is the kindest and gentlest people I've ever met. They should be citizens of Spain with equal rights and citizen rights that, for, that every Spaniard gets. And so he wants them under protection of Spain. He, wants them, he, he just thinks they're great. And so as he prepares to go back, as he goes back, one of the ships runs aground, and it does, one of his ships, it runs aground. He's going back for supplies. It runs aground. It damages the bottom of the ship so much that they can't get the ship back to Spain. So he says, okay, you guys are in the ship. We're going to build you a fort here. You guys stay here. Uh, we won't be gone long. Just go and get supplies. Be right back. 
you got great friends here with the Taino. This is going to work out really good. So Columbus leaves, leaves the islands, go back to Spain. That ends his first voyage. Now, right after he left, the Taino, the, the uh, cannabis showed up, and they attacked the Taino, and they attacked Columbus's men. They killed every one of Columbus's men, and they cannibalized all of his men. They started eating his men. Now, Columbus doesn't know anything about this because he's back getting supplies. When Columbus arrives back and is at the start of his second voyage, he finds that the fort's been destroyed and all of his men are dead. And, and he actually sees their bodies. And, and as it turned out, the, the Tainos, the first thing they did when they killed someone, scoop out the eyeballs and ate them because they considered that a delicacy. So all of his guys are missing their eyes, and they've been cannibalized. And he's seeing this. And he asked the Taino, he said, what happened? And he said, you remember that group we told you about? We warned you about these people. Here they are. And so he, when he learns about them, he says, I'm going, I'm going looking for these guys. They're not going to do this to, to you or to my guys. And so he goes looking. He ends up in a Canada village. And in that Canada village, he finds it full of Taino women. There are 50 huts. In the, one of the doctors who was with them wrote about it. There were 50 huts there. The, Taino, the, the cannabis weren't there. And so Columbus said, where's the cannabis? We came for the cannabis. They said, oh, they've gone to a different island. They go island to island. They populate the island. They eat everyone there. And once they get done eating them, they come back here. Well, what are you Taino women doing here? Well, we're their sex slaves. And they rape us. And all the children we produce, they eat. And they went on to say that the, 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 the cannabis, they don't like eating, they don't like eating women or children. They like eating infants and full-grown men. And so this is what the doctor recorded from what the Taino women described to him. It says, when the Caribbees take any boys as prisoners, they remove their organs, they fatten the boys until they grow to manhood, and then when they wish to make a great feast, they kill and eat them, for they say the flesh of boys and women is not good to eat. So this is what they're finding out about the enemy that killed his own guys. Well, he finally finds the, the cannabis. He liberates the Taino women, sits all of them free, gets them back to safety. Then he goes and he finds the cannabis, and they engage and attack the cannabis. And it's a vicious war that happens, and Columbus defeats them. But this is the age of conquest we're talking about. This is not the day where you sit down with diplomats and talk about stuff. This is the age of conquest. This is what every nation did back then. And in the age of conquest, there's only two things you can do in the age of conquest. When you fight an enemy, what you can do is you can either kill them all or you can enslave those that you don't kill. Now, see, what you had here was a clash a polarization of cultures. You have a culture that says, hey, human life is great for food. That's what we say. And the other says, no. And when you have a clash like this, what's Columbus going to do? So he goes, hey, you guys really shouldn't be eating people. Let's kind of wean you off that. Here's the deal. <laughs> Only eat people on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Don't eat them the rest of the week. We're going to get you weaned. No. It's stop it. This is wrong. See, this is what God told Israel when they went into the promised land. He said, these guys where you're going, they're so twisted. They sacrifice their children. They burn them in the fire. Just wipe them out. See, when you have a clash, a polarization of cultures like that, there's no middle ground on it. You don't, you don't have a middle ground of kind of eat people. It's no. Stop it. And so that's what happened with this. Now, significantly... What happened with Columbus, it, it, I would say this is a lot like ISIS, because you remember, we got introduced to the ISIS through the caliphate they were trying to establish in the Middle East. Remember, it started with those 20, 20 folks that they took, Coptic Christians, took them out in the Mediterranean Sea, beheaded all of them, national TV, we saw how barbaric, and then as the, uh, the caliphate grows across the Middle East, it's, you know, it becomes a really terrorist thing. I helped run a national organization called the Nazarene Fund. We got started back when the caliphate 
caliphate was coming up because what we did was we would go in and rescue Christians and take them away from ISIS. We got over 200,000 Christians taken away from ISIS, sex slaves, all sorts of stuff. Um, We had great relationships with Australia. Australia took every single Christian slave that we sent, every sex slave, whether it was Yazidi, whether it was Christian, we took religious minorities, got them out. Our guys literally went in to fight ISIS. We had two of our guys killed in missions taking these slaves away from ISIS. One guy was shot 17 times. I mean, this wasn't like negotiations. We went in and grabbed them and snatched them and took them out and got them in safety. Another day. So what happened was at the, by the end of President Trump's term, we had eliminated the ISIS caliphate. Now, ISIS still exists. They're very active in Africa. But the ISIS caliphate was gone. Is anybody accusing him of genocide for what he did? No, because they needed to be gone. See, that's the way it was with the cannibals. They needed to be gone. That, do you know how many tribes were saved in the Caribbean because of what Columbus did by wiping out the ISIS of that generation? He didn't just save himself. He saved tribes. He saved the Tainos. He saved all the... If you ever go on a cruise of the Caribbean today, you're not going to have to worry about cannibals. Yeah, right. If you want to call that a genocide, it doesn't even make sense because of who they were and what was happening and what they did and how they provoked it and what they were doing. So, see, there's another part of the story. Well, that ends the second voyage. Now, this time as he goes back to Spain... Some of the Tainos asked if they can go with him. They want to go back to Spain with him. He said, well, if you want to, sure. Went back to Spain. They were made part of the royal court. It's not like they were subjugated citizens. They were honored citizens. They were made part of the royal court. Now, Columbus did take with him some of the cannibals that he didn't kill. He presented them to King Queen and said, you're not going to believe this. Over there, they eat people. And these are some of the guys that ate my men. So if you want to call this enslavement and genocide... And sex trafficking, by the way, no sex trafficking there at all. But see, this is the claim that's out today, and people say, I guess we shouldn't celebrate Columbus Day anymore. See, we just hear it and buy into it, whether it's true or not. And historically true, there's a reason he had 600 statues. So the real story is quite different from what we hear, but there's even more to that, because we're also told that he only did this for gold. He was in it for gold and gain. What if there's more to that story like there was to the story I just showed you? Now, to even figure out whether this claim is true, you're going to have to know what was happening back then. And to know what's happening back then, you're going to have to understand something about the Crusades. Now, I, I do, I've been appointed a number of states by state boards of education to review history and social studies standards, help do that for the kids in that state. And in doing that, I have yet to see an American standard on uh, an American textbook that deals with world history or world geography or even deals with American history in Columbus that doesn't in some way cover the Crusades. And when it does, I mean, Christians were the ones who attacked. We were slaughtering people and killing people, and we're advancing the cross of, of Christ by force and by the sword. Now, to even understand the Crusades, you've got to be able to answer three questions. And if you can't answer these three questions, then you really don't know anything about the Crusades, or at least not what you might think you know. Who's involved in the Crusades? Where did they occur? And why did they occur? So let's go to the Christian Crusades first. The Christian Crusades, you see it, the red crosses there. There's somewhere from 8 to 37, depending on which source you, you get, 8 Christian Crusades, 37 Christian Crusades, but they're all over the Middle East. Here's these Christians going in and advancing Christianity by force. You see them there in the Holy Land. You also see them up in the seven churches of Revelation. So up in the Turkey area, you see some across the top part of, of uh, Egypt. So wherever Christianity was strong, that's where these Christians went in and they advanced Christianity by the sword. Who were they fighting? Well, they were fighting Muslims. 
And the Muslims themselves had actually started the Crusades. It wasn't the Christians who started it. As a matter of fact, if you look at the Muslim Crusades, do you know that looking at Muslim Crusades, there were 548 Muslim Crusades? Any of you get that in your history book when you went through? You got the American Crusades, you didn't get the... There's a big difference between 548 and 37. And look where these Muslim Crusades were occurring. You see, just take care of, for, for example, Italy. This is where Columbus is from. He grew up in a nation that was under constant attack by Muslims because the Muslims said, hey, we've got to convert you by force. And if you're a Christian or a Jew or another religion, we've got to wipe you out and you've got to convert to, to uh, Islam. And so he grows up with this. And why Italy? Because remember, this is where the book of Romans, Paul had gone there. This is the missionary journey. Says, there's the church at Rome. We, there's a lot of Christians there. So we've got to conquer Italy. Well, Columbus is sailing for the nation of Spain. And Spain had more than 200 crusades against it. 200 times Muslims came into Spain. Why would you fight them? Because churches there are Paul missionary journeys, gets the church started in Spain. It's a strong church. It's going there. So here come the Muslims to wipe out all the Christians. And the other hot spot you see in this period of time is the Holy Land, where all the Christians and Jews are. That's got to be conquered. And so it's interesting if you know much about history back in that time of, of, of these crusades. Anytime Muslims conquered either a Christian or Jewish site or civilization or city, they would erect a mosque and a minaret. Now, this is why a lot of people got ticked off after 9-11 when they wanted to build a mosque on the site of the 9-11 crash. Because if you know Islamic history, that's what you do once you've conquered a people. Once you've conquered an enemy. You've been, so you go on the Holy Land. You guys know the Holy Land. We know the Holy Land. You, you go, for example, to Caesarea. This is where Paul sits on missionary journeys. This is where he was in, in prison and Herod the Great and the, the great hippodrome there. The, you see that? And it's a conquered city because, as you see there, you'll find the ancient Muslim uh, minarets and mosques there back from the crusade days. These are crusade stuff because it had been Jewish and Christian, and now we've got to get rid of that, so it's now Islam. Uh, you have the same thing with Bethlehem, birthplace of David, birthplace of Jesus. It's now a Muslim town. It was conquered early. Minarets, you've got to get rid of that because that's a famous place for Christians and Jews. Nazareth, the boyhood home of Jesus, it's a Muslim town. The, the minarets and the mosque, it was conquered back early the same way. You even look at the Temple Mount, holy to Christians and Jews, and yet it's the third most holy place in Islam now. It was conquered back in the Crusades. You have the same thing with even Caesarea Philippi. This is where Jesus talked to Peter and said, Peter, on this rock I'll build my church. The gates of hell won't prevail against it big important place and for Catholics especially because they think Peter's the first pope and that's what Jesus commissioned Peter's the first pope well it's been conquered you can see the the old crusader minaret and and mosque there anything that's important to Christians and Jews got attacked and got conquered and we know it got conquered because they they have the symbol of we just conquered you by the mosque and the minaret so this is what's going on in Columbus's day he actually participated in battles, defending himself against the attack of the Muslims that came against him. So he's very conscious of, of, of what's happening. And as he writes, in his, and remember, we got lots of writings from Columbus. As he writes in his own writings, he says, I've consulted all the major theological writings of the day, and they all agree that Jesus will be back within 155 years. Now, I don't know why 155. That's what the end-time theology was at that point in time. He says all the theologians agree Jesus will be back in 155 years. Didn't turn out that way. But notice his motivation. He says when Jesus returns, he's going to come back to Jerusalem. 
That needs to be in the hands of people who love him. That needs to be in the hands of Christians and Jews. He said, we need to get the, the, the Muslim infidels out, out of there. And that's just, you, you can say, well, that's a stupid idea. But notice his motivation. His motivation is to have the place ready for Jesus when he comes back. So that's why he wants the gold. And this is what he told the king and queen about it. He said, specifically, I wish that all the prophets of this my enterprise may be, spent, may be sent in the conquest of Jerusalem. It's not like I'm trying to build myself a 43-story castle. I don't want the gold for myself. I want, to, I want to see the Holy Land back in the hands of people who love God. And so that's what he wanted the money for, whatever they came in. And by the way, he would not let his, his crews, his sailors, they could not take any gold from the, the Taino Indians. Taino Indians offered gold. He wouldn't accept it unless they gave something of equal value in return. He didn't want to take advantage of them, he, and his crew did. His crew wanted all the gold they could get. He said, no, 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 you're not going to take advantage of these people. They don't understand how valuable gold is. We do. You don't take any gold from them unless you give them something equal value in return. So trade. So Columbus, and again, all this is recorded. So what we have is when you look at Columbus, um, the story is real different. Now, Columbus's journals, I just showed you part of that with Jerusalem, Columbus did a lot of writings. Um, he has what's called his Book of Prophecies. This came out between his third and fourth journey. And this Book of Prophecies, now I, I can't read Latin. This is in Latin. But if you can tell, on the left page it says Ezekiel. Then on the right page it says Ezekiel chapter 28, Ezekiel chapter 32, Ezekiel chapter 34, Ezekiel chapter 35, Ezekiel chapter 36. What Columbus said was he went through the Scriptures and God spoke to him. He said, the Holy Spirit spoke to me out of the Scriptures. And so he wrote down every verse where the Holy Spirit spoke to him. And he says, and, and this is what he explained. He says, I've seen and put in study to look into all the Scriptures. Our Lord opened my understanding. I could sense his hand upon me. All those who heard about my enterprise rejected it with laughter, scoffing at me. He said, but who doubts that this illumination is from the Holy Spirit? See, as he was going through Isaiah... He read in Isaiah where the light is to go to the Isles of the Sea. He said, the light, that's the gospel. The Isles of the Sea, that's places we haven't been. And my name is Christopher, which means Christ bearer. God has chosen me to take the gospel to the Isles of the Sea. And that was part of the motivation for his boys. He says, everybody who heard about it laughed at me. They made fun of me. But who doubts that this inspiration is from the Holy Spirit? I attest that he, the Spirit, with marvelous rays of light, consoled me through the holy and sacred scriptures. No one should be afraid to take on any enterprise in the name of our Savior if it's right and if the purpose is purely for his holy service. Is that the Columbus we hear about in textbooks today? That's the original documents. See, what happens is we don't even know our own history well enough to know whether it happened or not. We're just, we're canceling people without even knowing their story anymore. We're not looking and, and, and digging. So he's the example of that. So the real story of Columbus is very different. So that's one example. Um, this is a good time to point out a couple Bible verses. Proverbs eighteen seventeen says, one side sounds good until you hear the other. This is the basis of the due process rights in our Bill of Rights, the 4th through the 8th Amendment, what we call the Confrontation Clause and the Compel Clause. I get to compel witnesses in my behalf, and I get to confront witnesses against me. Why? Because one side sounds good until the other. This is why we have a prosecution and a defense. If only the prosecution talked, we would convict everybody. If only the defense talked, we would release everybody. What a jury has to do is listen to both sides, figure out where truth is, and then come to a decision on the truth. See, that's what we should be doing with news and with politics and with history and with media and with everything else. 
and I don't care what, you're conservative, so you listen to Victory News, or you listen to Newsmax, you listen to Fox, or you're liberal, you listen to CNN, you listen to MSNBC. Whatever side you listen to, you ought to get the other side and find out where truth is and make the decision. You can't just say, well, it's my side, therefore I believe it. No, both sides have been wrong. I find find stuff inaccurate on both sides. You need to love the truth. So the other verse I'll point you to is Acts 17, 11. This deals with the Apostle Paul. Remember, the Apostle Paul is the most credentialed apostle we have in Christendom. This is the guy with all the PhDs after his name. He learned at Gamal. He's a Pharisee. The Pharisee is the Jew. The Jew. I mean, he's got it all down, and he's now on his second missionary journey. And he had just been to Thessalonica, and that's the church, First and Second Thessalonians is Paul's letters to that church. He'd just been there. He says, I'm in Berea now, and I love these guys. These guys don't believe a single thing I tell them until they check it out. I've got all these credentials, and they say, yeah, that's nice, but let us check it for ourselves. And this is what he said about those in Berea. He said, those in Berea were more noble than those in Thessalonica, and they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the Scriptures daily to see whether the things I told them were true. Even Paul? Uh, Paul, that's really, let's pull the scrolls out and check that. Okay, you're right. Yeah, keep going. I want to hear more. It, it's the kind of thing where they, he said, I love these guys. They want the truth more than they want anything else. They're not impressed with my credentials. They want to check it themselves. That's the attitude right now, particularly in this culture that we have to have. So let me just, I'll, I'll get on some other statues real quick, but we got to get to the point where we're not after hearsay. We want true evidence. And so whatever we hear on the, on the memes, the headlines, or the sound bites, or social media, that's not truth necessarily. It might be. You need to confirm that. You need to find out for yourself. That means Americans are going to have to do more work than we've done in a long time. We've just been accepting things, whether they're from our side or the other side. We can't do that. So back to the love of truth. What we've got with these statues, let me run through some of them because I keep a list of these statues. You remember when this started, the, the first part of last year, um, this, was, this was about ending racism. And so all these statues that reflect racism, they have to come down. And that's why Confederate statues were coming down. I mean, Confederates, this is racism. And if you look, I just I went and checked, Googled online, and top two lists that I found listing the statues torn down, all Confederate statues. Yeah, but that's not what's happening. That may be what I'm being told. That may be what I find online, but that's not what's happening. Uh, For example, if that was what's happening, then why tear down the statue of David Farragut? Because David Farragut was a Union commander who led the Union Navy. He was anti-slavery. He had lived in the South. He went north to fight for the Union to fight against slavery. Here's a guy who was committed to ending racism and slavery, and we tear down his statue. Uh, he's not Confederate, and he's not a racist. And by the way, why would we tear down Ulysses S. Grant? Because he's a military commander who led the Union to defeat the Confederacy. So if you're saying Confederate statues and racism, why did you tear down the guy who defeated the Confederates? And by the way, why would you tear down the Mass 54th? Mass 54th is the Black Breakthrough Equality Unit out of Massachusetts. Frederick Douglass helped start this unit. His own two sons fought in that unit. The mass, I've actually have laws that were passed in Congress, the actual laws that went through the House and Senate, that as a result of what these guys did, breakthrough, victory, equality, the law says every soldier, black and white, will be paid exactly the same. We've got equality because of what they did, and we're going to tear down their statues as well. By the way, this is the basis of the movie Glory back Denzel Washington back 20 years ago. So we're going after them. We go after Abraham Lincoln. He's the great emancipator. 
This statue, three statues torn down of Lincoln, they're all this. This statue was raised by funds from slaves that had been freed under Lincoln. They raised the money for this, and Frederick Douglass gave the oration at the dedication of the statue, and now we're tearing down Abraham Lincoln statues? Don't think that's Confederate. No, he wasn't a racist. And then we're tearing down Frederick Douglass statues? Are you kidding me? So it looks like we're tearing down abolitionists and civil rights leaders. Well, let's go a little further. We're also saying Jesus is a bad guy. And you may have seen these headlines that, that Christianity and, and Jesus, white supremacy. I don't know if you know, guys, but Jesus wasn't a white guy. Everybody aware of that? <laughs> Jesus was not a white guy. And yet, all these Jesus statues torn down, Florida and Miami, they, they'd like to behead them for some reason. Um, this is El Paso, happened a few weeks ago, a Jesus statue beheaded. Um, this is in, in Connecticut, churches attacked there. As a matter of fact, over the course of a week, 11 churches were attacked and shut down. Um, you have the same thing going with St. John's Church in D.C., the Church of the Presidents. This is where all the presidents went, and they finally got the fire put out, and then BLM came back and started the fire again a week later. And then we're tearing Ten Commandments monuments down. That's going... I don't know what Ten Commandments have to do with racism. I don't know what that has to do with Confederate stuff. You've got the same issue when you go to Portland. They're burning Bibles. Bible's racist? No. Bible's what the abolitionists use to say equality, and that's what we use to be able to end slavery. Let, um, Bible's not racist. And then why go at Denver? Why go after the Armenian Genocide Memorial in Denver? Now, Armenian Genocide happened at the end of World War I, when Muslims killed Christians all throughout the region, several million were killed, mass graves, a lot like happened the Holocaust later with Hitler, except Hitler was a lot larger. I think this was like 2 million and Hitler was 7 million. But nonetheless, it's, it's Muslims that entered World War I just slaughtering Christians. Matter of fact, some of the famous pictures from back then, famous photographs, uh, include young Christian girls being crucified at the time. Why would you tear down that memorial? Well, looks like we don't like Christ or Christianity either. And then why would you tear down the World War I memorial in Pittsburgh or the World War I memorial in Kansas City or the World War I memorial in Birmingham? And why go after the World War II memorial in Washington, D.C. or the World War II memorial in Indiana or the World War II memorial in Merced, California? List all the guys from Merced who died. Why, why go after that? Why go after the World War II memorial in Charlotte? Looks like we don't like the military either. And then we're going after the statue of, of Caesar Rodney, signer of the Declaration. If you have a, those state quarters, he's the guy on the back of the Delaware Quarter riding the horse so fast. This is a guy who was anti-slavery. He's an anti-slavery founding father, but we've got to tear him down as a founding father because they were all racist. And Ben Franklin, tear his statue down? Ben Franklin is the guy who led the National Abolition Movement. He founded the Pennsylvania Abolition Society, got the first law introduced, the first national law introduced in Congress, 1790, petitioning for the end of slavery in every state. We're tearing Franklin down, and then we're going after Schuler. Schuler, General Schuler, is the guy who helps us win the Battle of Saratoga, and Saratoga is the first major victory in the American Revolution. If we hadn't won that, the French wouldn't have got on our side and helped us, and we got their navy there. Maybe the only time in the history of the French that they actually won a battle, and that was when they helped America. But nonetheless, the French side is as a result of what Philip Schuler did. And then you've got also Casimir Pulaski. He's from Poland. He came to America. And he got to America to fight for America's freedom because of the oppression he saw on the part of the British. 
He was a huge anti-slavery guy. And by the way, this is another part of history we don't get today. We have no clue that the American founding was very much a melting pot. Do you know George Washington had 76 generals, and of the 76, 28 were from foreign nations who came to, to fight in America? We were a melting pot. And by the way, back then, you have no clue how many black heroes we had in the, the American Revolution. I mean, the, what, what we could say arguably is the start of the SEAL team was black patriot Jack Sisson, a mission he pulled off in, in Rhode Island in 1778. But we don't hear about him. We don't hear about black patriots like Prince. Esterbrook or Oliver Cromwell. We don't hear about uh, James Armistead, Washington Lafayette. Both credit Armistead with bringing it into the revolution when they did, saving countless American lives. I mean, all these black guys we don't hear about. And by the way, the American military back then was completely voluntary in the American Revolution. The average black soldier served nine times longer than the average white soldier voluntarily. Six-month enlistment. The average white guy enlisted for six months. The average black guy enlisted for six months and re-enlisted nine different times. And every battle in the American Revolution had integrated units, black and white, fighting side by side. And by the way, blacks were elected off in 1641, Matthias D'Souza. They were elected with Wentworth Cheswell, black guy elected in white community. You have Thomas Hercules. We don't get this history today. It was all a bunch of racist white guys. No, Casimir Pulaski, tear his statue down because he's with the American Revolution. He's an anti-slavery guy from a different nation. And by the way, so is Thaddeus Kosciuszko. He's from Lithuania. He came to America to help fight for American independence, and he was a wealthy nobleman, and he took all of his money and left it in America to free slaves in the South. That's a guy that's noble. Why don't we honor him? No, we've got to tear him down. We've got the same thing with Louis. Why tear Louis XVI down? Because he helped America in the Revolution. He's the guy who sent the army and the navy. And then we've got the, the tomb of the unknown soldier of the American Revolution. We've got to go deface it and attack it. So it looks like we don't like founding fathers. As a matter of fact, it just looks like we don't like America is what it looks like. Because you can take any category of statues and go across them and say, all right, so you did get some Confederate statues, you did get some racist, but you also got all this other stuff. And see, America didn't say anything about it because we didn't know what was going on. Didn't, who knows who Thaddeus Kosciuszko is? Who knows who Casimir Pulaski? We don't know those guys. So we buy a narrative that's not true because we didn't spend the time to work and see what the story was on the stuff. So all this, so closing out. Love of the truth is the most important thing we can do. We have to have a love of the truth. This is not common in American culture today. We also have to find the truth. This is the part where it now challenges us individually. Finding the truth is hard work. We have been coasting for a long time in America. We've had good intentions. Well, my teacher wouldn't lie to me. Oh, the media wouldn't say that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, how's that worked out for us? You can't do that. I'm going to suggest that what I covered with Columbus this morning might have been new for most of you. But it's history. It's true. It's documented. It's out there. Every generation prior to this generation knew it. See, it's going to take hard work to find the truth. Now you're going to have to look up Casimir Pulaski. You're going to have to look up Thaddeus Kuskuskos. You're going to have to look up Philip Schuler. You're going to have to look up guys we haven't heard about in years in America. But that's part of it. So not only do we have to love the truth, now we have to find the truth. It's like the Bereans did with Paul. He says, yeah, Paul, that's really good thought. Maybe that's true, 
let's check the scriptures. Okay, you're right. It was. See, we're going to have to put the work into, into doing it now. And the, the third and final thing we have to do is we're going to have to defend the truth. And this takes a lot of courage, particularly in this culture today. Um, we have polling recently that shows that 77% of traditional value Americans, like Christians, self-censor because of the current climate we're in. If you don't know, since the election, 70,000 Christian groups and platforms, traditional value groups, et cetera, have been deplatformed. Our 70,000 Christian groups and individuals have been deplatformed as since the election. So the, the message is real clear. If you guys are going to talk about this, you're going to find somewhere else to talk about it. You, we're going to cut you off from all your friends. You're not going to have any voice anymore. And so what's happening, people are backing down saying, I better not say about that because if I do, I'll, uh, I've got 183 friends on Facebook, and I won't be able to talk to them anymore if I say that. So, I'll, so what we're doing is self-censoring. And we're not talking and not giving the truth. We're repeating their narrative or at least letting it rest. We're not challenging. What do you mean Genocide Day is Columbus? Do you, do you know the story? We're not challenging stuff. We're just letting that stuff go past us. And so we have to defend the truth. And that puts, if you, if you leave here this morning and go make a good post about Columbus, I guarantee you, you will get attacked. No question about it, you'll get attacked. As you will anytime you stand up for the truth in a, in a culture that's hostile to truth. Because, again, remember, two out of three think, I make my own truth. I make my individual truth. No, you have absolute truth. So you have to get to the point where you're willing to defend the truth. Um, we know in the Bible, the Bible gives us guidance on everything, including spiritual guidance, heaven and hell. We know hell is real. We know heaven is real. And we know how to get to heaven. How do you get to heaven? Through Jesus Despite what 80% of Christians think that you can get there other ways, you get there through Jesus. How do you get to hell? Well, first, is it real? A lot of people don't think it is, um, but we know that it is because Revelation 21.8, there's a lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is a second death. So we know there's a real hell. Who goes to hell? Well, first part of the verse tells us. It's the faithless. It's the detestable. It's the murderers. It's the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, all liars. Ooh, those are some bad dudes. They've done some bad stuff. That's why they go to hell. Except there's something missing up top. What's missing? The first thing that God puts on the list, notice what it is. It's cowards and fearful. Those who have no backbone. Those who won't stand up. See, everybody else goes for what they did. That first group goes for what they didn't do. They wouldn't stand up. Cowards and fearful. First group that goes to hell. America's going to have to get a backbone at some point. Especially people who know what the truth is. Because if we don't stand up for what's true, wherever that is... And don't misunderstand me. You will get attacked. Yeah. Welcome to Jesus' world. So, truth takes courage. Summing this up, need to love the truth, need to find the truth, need to defend the truth. That's where we are in the culture right now, and that's what Christians have to do. If this is of interest to you, uh, back on the table, we have what's called the American story, which goes through like the stuff on Columbus. It goes from Columbus all the way through the end of slavery, looking at stories we no longer tell that actually come out of the original documents. And if you want to see how the Bible shapes so much of the culture, which, again, Christians today don't know how to apply the Bible to, to even economic areas, Founders Bible is also back there as well. God bless you guys. Thanks for letting me share with you. How many enjoy that? I told you, it's the best. I told you, it's the best. Uh, absolutely amazing. I want to 
take a seat. I want to just take a few more minutes because I'm stirred and I know you're stirred. You're talking about standing up for truth. Mm-hmm. How do we, David, how do we, how do we do that? Let me give you two questions. How do we stand up for truth? And we talked about this in the back. And you have so many churches or pastors, I'll just say pastors, who say church is not the place to do this. Uh, church should be spiritual, not political. Can you address our people to give them absolutely brilliant? That was absolutely brilliant. Give us some direction. How do we, how do we tell the truth? The first thing I go to is Song of Solomon 813. It said, your friends listen to your voice, so speak. Great starting place. You've got a circle of influence, whether it's one person or whether it's two people or whether it's 100 people, whether it's a million people. You're going to have to speak. Now, you don't have to go in swinging away confrontational. You go in with the education standpoint. One of the things we do in the summer uh, is we spend summer with 18 to 25-year-olds, two weeks at a time, getting them the apologetics of America, the apologetics of the Bible. Where they are in culture right now, 80% of kids who are raised in church that go to college deny their faith while they're at college. They can't defend the free market system. They can't defend morality. They can't defend heroes. They can't defend anything because they don't know about it. They can't defend their, their faith. So what we do is in that period of time, we use the approach that Jesus used. If you notice in the Gospels, Jesus asked 300 questions. He didn't answer them, but he asked a whole lot. Why do you ask questions? To make people think. And so you don't have to go and say, you are so dumb for believing that. Don't you not? Don't do that. Start asking questions. Um, I, I, my Jewish friends, they say, you guys in America are crazy. Your kids come home from school, and you say, what did you learn today? He said, our kids come home from school. We say, how many questions did you ask today? And that's the deal. You start asking questions, it makes you think. This is what we did in American education up to the 1920s. We had a pedagogical change in the 1920s. We became learners after the 1920s. We were thinkers before the 1920s. We need to go back to thinking. Ask questions of your friends. Cause them to think. Just bait them a little bit and just leave it hanging. They'll come, I, I don't know. I've never thought about that. What's the answer? When they ask you, they're willing to listen. If you just go right at them with the truth and don't put it in, in, in a palatable way, you're going to get rejected. So that's, that's the, the first thing I'd say is start with your sphere of influence. The second thing I'd say is we're seeing in polling right now that while the younger the generation, the less open they are to um, absolute truth because they've just been through education. I mean, it's so good. It's not that they're opposed to it. It's just they haven't heard it. And so what we, what we find with millennials and Gen Zs is they are more relational than any group we've had in American polling history. For example, millennials, if you ask employees, where do you want to spend time, it's with other employees. If you ask millennials, where do you want to spend time, they will say, with the boss. They want to be mentored. This is the first generation polling-wise that wants to be mentored. So take some time. Hang out with people younger than you. If you're wow. 18, find a 15-year-old. Hang out with them. Just start being a friend. And help they, and you got to understand that 58% of millennials come out of a home that had no mother and father in the home. So it's the most broken generation we've had marriage wise. They haven't had that adult in the home. And they, they want a relationship with someone who's that mentor. So they're wide open for truth, they just don't know what it is. Create a relationship where that you can deliver that truth. That's what Jesus did with his disciples. You know, that because they were friends, he could speak very bluntly to them, which he did. But you've got to create the friendship first. So that, that's the first part. Second part, Pastor Larry. What church's you, part in this. Church's part in this. Uh, the, the church, there's a great verse in Romans 
12, well, the great verse is all in the Bible, but I'm going to choose Romans 12, 1 and 2. Be not conformed to this world, be transformed by renewing of your minds, what we're told. In the Phillips translation, it says, don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold. And what we've done is we've let non, we've let people who don't like Christians tell Christians where we can speak and what we can speak about. We've let our enemy say, oh, you guys can't talk about politics and church or separation church and state. And so we're letting them define our role. If you want to look at the Great Commission, Jesus said, go teach them everything I taught you. Let me point out that in Matthew 20, Jesus taught about minimum wage and he taught about the inviability of employer-employee contracts. In John 8, Jesus taught about the criminal justice system and what we call due process rights. Uh, Matthew 19, Jesus had a long lecture on no-fault divorce. And his disciples got offended. Peter said, that's really hard. He said, Paul, uh, he said, Moses let us have a divorce for any reason. And Jesus said, yeah, but that's because of the hardness of your heart. At the beginning, God put them together, male and female, and said, whatever God has put together, let not man put asunder. He said, you're not supposed to get a divorce. And Peter said, that's a hard teaching, Lord. Yeah, but it's something Jesus taught. Yeah. If we're going to teach everything Jesus taught, he wasn't just teaching spiritual stuff. He taught economic stuff. He taught criminal justice stuff. He taught relational stuff. The church is not doing that. We do a lot of polling. We have found that uh, right now, 72% of pastors in America, 384,000 pastors in America, 72% say they do not agree with the Bible's major teachings. They disagree with the Bible. Say, say that again, because that is just, just mind-blowing. George Barna, working closely with George Barna, 384,000 senior pastors in America. George calls 500 a day, asks them six questions. Do you think Jesus lived a sinless life? Do you think the Bible is accurate in its teachings? Do you think God answers prayer? Do you think Satan is a real or an imaginary being? Do you think you can earn your way to hell? I mean, six, six easy questions. 72% of pastors say they did not agree with those, those six points. So that's the essence of simplicity of Christianity. 72% of pastors don't agree. So that leaves 28% of pastors that do agree. That's 107,000 pastors in America. So call in 500 of them a day. Say, do you think the Bible addresses every issue of life? Gave them 14 issues. Do you think the Bible addresses immigration? Does it address economics? Does it address sexuality, gender? Does it address education? All the way through. And of the pastors who believe the Bible, between 91 and 97% of pastors said, yes, the Bible definitely addresses immigration or sexuality or gender or whatever. Then we say, have you addressed that issue, or do you have plans to address that issue? Ninety percent of the good pastors say, no, 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 that's political stuff. We don't deal with political stuff in the church. Whoa, you just told me it was in the Bible. Yeah, but that's political. No, Bible was around before America was ever created. I mean, it was, this is not political stuff. So the church is failing to address what the Bible addressed, and the Bible is super practical. And this is why a lot of Christians are not practical and don't have a biblical worldview because they get nothing out of church that looks like it applies to the culture. All they get is they can say the sinner's prayer. Um, Not to be offensive, I can teach a parrot to say the sinner's prayer. That doesn't mean they're a Christian. It takes discipleship, not conversion. Conversion is the starting place. That's not the end place. And for much of the church today, conversion is the goal. It's not the goal. That's the starting place. Disciples are the goal. And you only get disciples by getting down and getting in all the junk and messing with the junk and guiding people through it. So at some point, the church is going to have to get a backbone, too. I mean, it's going to have to stand up. And by the way, I'm seeing that. I, I literally, 
I firmly believe that we are in the third great awakening. Yes. It's just that historically people don't know what a great awakening really looks like, so they keep praying for revival. Mm. I think it's here, but what do you do when you get in one? Well, that's where you learn from the first and second great awakening what to do. That's where you learn from Asa, Josiah, Jehoshaphat, all those who had awakenings in their generations how to do this. It's years, it's a decades-long battle. The first great awakening was 40 years long. It's not suddenly we wake up on Monday morning and the nation's really healthy. No. You've got a lot of people to disciple along the way. You've you got a lot of mess to clean up. The second great awakening went from 1801 to 1878. My gosh, you could have been born in 1802, died in 1877, be 75 years old and never knew you lived your entire life in a revival. It wouldn't seem like one to you. Revivals move slowly, but they're always about applicability. It's where the gospel becomes relevant again. That's, this is why we started hospitals at the end of the first great awakening. This is why we started so much we did because we saw where the Bible applied to medicine. It applied to charity. It applied to all sorts of things. So we've got to get back there. That's a long answer to your short question. But we love it. That's we love it. So you, be- you believe we're, at, we're in the, the beginning of the third awakening? I think we're firmly in the third awakening. Um, and, and one of the things that happened... No great awakening has ever been a unity producer. Every great awakening has polarized the church. The second great awakening caused three denominations to split and led to a civil war over slavery. The second great awakening was all about equality and slavery is wrong. And there was a whole lot of Christians who didn't buy that. That's why the Baptist church split. That's why the Presbyterian church split. That's why the Methodist church split. And they didn't agree with that. And we had a civil war over it. So how did that revival work out? That must have been a lot of fun. No. The first great awakening ended in an American revolution. See, what happens is you polarize the culture over truth, and you get the church where it's finally relevant and finally strong, and you got another side that's just committed to lies and committed to deception, and and that's what a revival does. It separates the wheat from the chaff and the light from the dark. It's not that everybody suddenly starts agreeing with each other. It's never happened. Otherwise, Jesus was a complete failure. A whole lot of the world didn't agree with what he did. They killed him for it. Yeah. So I think we're firmly in a great awakening. Uh, I'm seeing what I'm seeing with young people, that there's nothing that encourages me more than what we do in the summer. I mean, I'm all over the nation. We deal with countless scores of congressmen. And, and legis- every day this week I've been on a call with some state legislature working on some issue. We deal with lots of there's nothing that encouraged me as much as seeing these Gen Zers right now that when they get turned on to truth, they're the most passionate group I've ever seen. Yeah. It's just they didn't know what truth was. And I started to tell you, when we have this, and, and even when kids come in and believe what we believe, we spend the first two days tearing them down, showing them they don't know why they believe what they believe. They can't defend it. They may agree with us, but you can't defend it. And so we ask them hostile questions to show you really don't know. And then we show them after we get done and, and, and rebuild and show what the Bible says, show what history is. Every single year we have done this, we have kids that go back and convert their professors simply by asking the professors questions they've never thought of before. Wow. Wow. You just go back and start asking pr- wow. professors. I don't know. I've, I've never heard that. That's interesting. I'll have to look into that. I've never heard that. And, and, and so, again, what we do in the summers is the most exciting thing to me, and it's one of the greatest indications of revival because revival is always transgenerational. If you remember um, in Judges 13 where that 
the nation of Israel had been praying for years for deliverance from the Philistines. Philistines had them under the oppression. And God says, okay, I'm going to deliver you. He sent an angel to earth to tell them, I've heard your prayers. I'm going to deliver you. The angel went and looked up a guy named Manoah and said to Manoah, Manoah, God's heard the prayers of this people. He's going to deliver you. Here's how it's going to happen. Your wife's going to get pregnant. And when that kid grows up, he's going to be the national deliverer. Time out. I've got to wait 20 years. I thought you said you heard my prayer. He often sends a new generation that will fix things and get it right. And that's what happened with the first great awakening, the second great awakening. And I think that's what's happening now. And I think that's why Satan is so intent on picking off our kids because Satan knows that they're, they're going to be the solution. I'll give you one example. Last, last month, we became a 51% pro-life nation. Finally, America is 51% pro-life. Really wow. good. Where were we before that? Uh, we had been down in the 40s, low 40s. Wow. And so we, we now are 51%. But polling with millennials and Gen Zers, only 19% are pro-abortion. Now, you want to tell me how those kids got 20 points more pro-life than everybody that teaches them? 20 points more pro-life than their churches and their pastors and their parents? And God just sent us a generation that when they get in office, they may not get anything else right, but they're getting an abortion. And we've been praying for that for a long time. So now Manoah is having his wife have a child that's going to be the national deliverer. See, that's transgenerational stuff. Um, John Quincy Adams, the the great anti-slavery guy, was the child of the First Great Awakening. And look what he did to help end slavery in America in a second. So that's the other thing is look at young people as assets that are unbelievable assets given by God. Train them, equip them. Equip them to be able to, uh, the Satan's got serious, it's like, just like Herod went after said, I'm going to kill every baby under two because I don't know which one of these it is, but I don't want him. You know, that's what they did because Jesus was born and he wanted to wipe out whatever that spiritual product was going to be. That's what's happening to our kids now. They're under attacks like we've never seen, never imagined because they are going to be the solution for what's coming if we can preserve them and keep them from getting killed in, in the process, spiritually killed, if that makes sense. So uh, that's. That's stuff I see happening, and I am, I'm really excited about the future. Now, that doesn't mean it's going to be easy and smooth. We're all going to get along because that's just not going to happen. But it does mean that the church is finally going to get strong. Church is going to get healthy. People are going to get practical again, and we're going to find the Bible applies to every aspect of life. And there will be some type of, of political or otherwise conflict over that, but we'll still prevail at the end. It's always the way it is in history. David, let me ask you one more question. I know I've kept you longer than I said. And I've would. kept you guys a long time, too. I'm but, sorry. But um, this morning I woke up and I was praying about the service. God, speak to us, stir us. And I started thinking about the second coming of the Lord. And this is what God put in my heart. What must we do? Mm-hmm. There's an outpouring. There's a, and, and, and I love the way you said it. We're, in the, we're in, in the midst of the third great awakening. What must we do? What, what, what's, what's as Christians, as church, as pastors, what's our, what's our next step? John Quincy Adams, I think, gave the right answer, at least for me in this. John Quincy Adams, anti-slavery guy, in the American founding is the first time you find a nation standing up against slavery. Um, by 1804, every northern colony had abolished slavery, had, had passed an abolition of slavery. Nobody else in the world did that before we did. Uh, 1807, we passed a ban on the slave trade. Nobody else in the world did that before we did. So America started something then, but it didn't get finished. 
And so what happens is you get to this next generation, the John Quincy Adams, and his number one issue when he went into Congress, he was 70 years in political life. He went into Congress. His number one issue was fighting slavery. He was called the hellhound of abolition. He said that when he got into Congress, 80% of Congress was pro-slavery. So how does that work out for you? That's not going to be real good. So he spent years talking about the slavery issue and getting his brain speed in for doing so. Uh, they actually passed what was called the John Quincy Adams gag order, where that in Congress he's not allowed to talk about slavery. Well, he did anyway. He would talk about it, and they tried censure, they tried reprimand, they tried expulsion. There were political campaign posters in his day that had a bullseye on his forehead that said, someone, shoot this man, kill him, get him out of Congress. Wow. That's the kind of a p- opposition wow. he had. And so 10, 10 years into this thing, I mean, he's not getting any bills passed. He's definitely in the minority. He's not appearing to be effective, et cetera. And the question is, why do you do this? I mean, you're not getting anything done. They're against you. You're in definite minority. You can't get a bill passed for your district. You're not representing them very well because you can't get nothing done. Why do you do this? You get frustrated. You get depressed. No, doesn't bother me. Why? Here was his answer. He said, duty is ours. Results are God's. He said, I don't do this. Duty is ours. Results are wow. God's. Brilliant. I don't do this because of how it turns out. I do it because it's the right thing to do. Now, I will point out, he eventually converted enough of the House over 10 years to his position. They rescinded that gag order. Uh, he actually came up with a constitutional amendment that would have ended slavery in 1843, 20 years before the Civil War. Couldn't get the Senate to go along with it. And it ends up that in the latter years of his life in the House, there was a freshman who got elected that just kind of got enamored with John Quincy Adams and sat at his feet and learned. And John Quincy Adams died that session. He poured into that kid for 14 months. John Quincy Adams died and never saw the end of slavery. The kid he mentored was a guy named Abraham Lincoln. Wow. Abraham Lincoln gets elected and says, I know this three-step plan that will end slavery. I mean, John Quincy Adams never saw the end of slavery. He trained the guy that did it because duty is ours, results are God's. So if we get that mentality, what if Jesus doesn't come back when I think? Doesn't matter. Duty is ours, results are God's. What if they don't like me? Doesn't matter. Duty is ours, results are God's. What? So that, that answer to me is the best answer for what's out there, and it closely parallels what Jesus told his apostles and disciples in, uh, in Luke 17, verses 1 through about 5 there, he talked about duty and the importance of duty. You can't have spiritual maturity if you don't learn to do your duty. And so that's where we are as a nation. We just got to do what's right and, and let God worry about how the rest of it is. Duty is ours. Results are God's. But if everybody does what's right, we will prevail. There's just no question in my mind. Awesome. I told you it was good, huh? Would you give David a great big hand one more time? Thanks, Thank guys. you, my friend. Thanks, I appreciate you. How many would like to have David come back and speak again? I mean, we're going to dismiss in prayer, but before we do, I'd like you to pray with me, everybody in the building. Say this out loud. Say, Father, I come to you right now in the name of Jesus. I know I've sinned. We've all sinned. But I know this. You love me so much you sent Jesus Christ to pay the price in full for all my sin. Right now, I receive Jesus Christ as my Lord and my Savior. Now say this with authority. Satan, 
Get out of my life. Get out of my mind. Get out of my spirit. Get out of my body, my home, my family, my finances, and my future. I declare in the name of Jesus Christ, I am more than a conqueror. Father, give me wisdom. Give me boldness to stand for you. Jesus, you died for me. And I declare I will live for you. In the name of Jesus, amen and amen. Give the Lord a clap offering one more time.